like my aunt said, you know, surgery, it's not for us. I remember them saying, once they open you up, it's pretty much over for you. And this is something that has been prevalent in uh, the Black community for many years. And we're talking about the Black community, but I think it's a very good bellwether for what happens to people who are other. And as healthcare gets better for Black people, it truly is the tide that lifts all ships. It lifts for all communities. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this podcast season is brought to you in collaboration with the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. This season will complement their Building Trust Initiative. Our goal is to provide historical context of different disparities and harm, show how it is connected to the inequities that still happen, but also share how change makers are taking action to ensure that history doesn't continue to repeat itself. Thank you so much, Pamela, for joining me to set the framework for the seventh season. So I'm excited for this conversation with you, Pamela. Thank you, Ashley. I'm excited to be here and to have a conversation a little bit about history, a lot about patience, a lot about where and how our past impacts our future and ultimately our health care. Yes, for sure. In order for us to really talk about the past and to give people our personal perspective, I think it's important for them to know our origin stories. Well, how did we get to this space of the work that we do and the perspectives in which we have? So what I would love is for you to share a little bit of your background and what brought you to this work that you do now and what has shaped your lens. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. You know, I just am so lucky to be in the field that I am. I am a communicator. I've been doing that for 40 years in different corporate responsibilities, but now I'm with the American Board of Internal Medicine. We are really looking at and paying attention to health equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. While I've enjoyed an incredible career, I have also, in the last two years, taken on the responsibility here at the American Board of Internal Medicine as the Chief Officer for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And it's been quite a journey, but a journey that really started long before I ever had my first job. It really is about my family and the history of my family. My family is from Henderson, North Carolina, on my father's side of the family. And on my mother's side of the family, they're from Pensacola, Florida. I am African-American. I am a cis female. I identify as she, her. I think it's important for people to say who they are and what their origin is, because I think we are all taking a closer look at all the intersectionalities that make us who we are. So my family is from the South. There is history of my family being enslaved. In fact, my great-grandfather, people think of it as like ancient history, but my Mm great-grandfather was born and was enslaved and he was set free at the age of 16. The first Mm -hmm. thing he did was he learned how to read. He may have made $5 a month, but everything that he made was spent learning how to read and educate himself. I remember being in the room when I had my great aunts on both sides of the family and hearing them talk about health care. 
and how they felt it wasn't for them that certainly surgery was nothing that they would ever consider. The message was that healthcare was not for people of color. Healthcare was not for us. Later in life, my mother had a lump in her breast at the age of 27. She went to a physician and complained about this lump in her breast, that there was some pain. And they sent her home and said, you know, you're too young. There's no problem for you. She came back a year later because the pain had not subsided. And they basically sent her home saying, oops, we're sorry. There's nothing more we can do for you. We should have caught it when you shared it with us, but now it's too late. So my first experience with healthcare was hearing the conversation amongst my family and seeing my mother who was diligent in her own care, but received bad information. I remember being eight and nine years old and helping my mother and hearing her say, you should not be taking care of me. I should be taking care of you. So it's very painful. It's very real. And again, back to history, it's not ancient history. It's what we are experiencing as a community today. And with that said, I know you had your own experience in the healthcare area as a part of your origin story, Ashley. Yes, I'm also an African-American woman, cis female, identifying as she, her, and I have family roots in South Carolina. And I was raised by my Nana, who is my mother's mother, and she was born in 1919. So she was actually 72 years old when I was born. That's incredible. What a a lovely grandmother you have. Yes. And at the time, I didn't realize how old she was because she drove me everywhere. She did everything for me. If I had a spider in my room, she would come take care of it. But now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, wow, she was doing all of that in her 80s. You know, and she was a woman who was always on top of everything. I remember from being in middle school, elementary school, and going to doctor's appointments with her. I remember sitting with her as she would put all of her pills in her medicine bottle. And I remember her taking care of herself, pursuing healthcare at a high level. I saw the healthcare system as something that could be trusted. And it wasn't until she got into her late 80s that she started experiencing dementia. That really was the onset of me becoming a caretaker. And at the time, I didn't know that I was a caretaker. I just knew that this is my Nana. She's taking care of me. I'm going to take care of her. I wasn't aware that there were support groups for families who have members who have Alzheimer's. I didn't know that there were resources out there that I could take advantage of. And I just lived through the experience, whether that was being of driving age where I could drive her back and forth to her appointments or having to understand dementia at another level where sometimes she would wake up in the middle of the night and say, Ashley, why are we at this hotel? And no matter how much I would tell her, Nana, we're not at a hotel, we're at home. She was adamant that we were at a hotel. So after a while I realized, yes, Nana, we're at a hotel. And if you just go back to sleep, when we wake up, I'll take you home. And then when she would wake up, she would be out of that spell. I think it was just in the middle of the night where she was really disoriented. As I became older, I started to learn the healthcare system for myself. I'm in my early 30s and I have found that it's important to advocate for yourself and speak up 
that wasn't something that my Nana necessarily taught me. As I became older and, and grew in my knowledge and experiences, I just started to realize that I had to be the captain of the ship and, and shop around for providers and, and look for what the best fit is for me. Right. Second opinions are a patient's best friend. And I think it's really important if you feel you're not hearing what you need to hear to feel like you are the captain of your ship as opposed to you're just letting someone else take the wheel, that I think it's really important that if you don't hear what you want to hear the first time around or the second time around, that you consider seeking out the right care, the care that works for you. Back to the kind of histories that we both are talking about and both experiencing, Chris Rock did a stand-up and he talked about his mother at the end of his presentation. And he shared history that I did not know about. The summation of his presentation, he said, when my mother was growing up in the South, it was illegal for black people to go to a white dentist. So if you had a dental issue and there was no black dentist to care for you, you had to go to the local veterinarian. And you talk about the dehumanization mm -hmm. of people. I think in my new role at the American Board of Internal Medicine as the chief diversity officer, that the one thing that I'm clear about is that being a well-educated person doesn't mean that you've been educated in a way that has all the information that you need in order to make decisions, in order to understand where we are as a community. And we are speaking of people of color, but this is LGBTQ, this is black and brown, this is socioeconomic, it is anything that is not cis white male that we need to be paying attention to. So as we are talking as a post-George Floyd moment, we are learning things that we didn't even know happened. Just how bad it was, just how challenged it was. A lot of people talked about trust in healthcare as if it existed even, but there are entire communities that never had the trust in healthcare. It's also important to remember that structural racism crosses across all kinds of things, healthcare, housing, socioeconomic in terms of finding jobs, education, and so, of course, it impacts healthcare. It's quite a history. You know, you had your MPH, you're a very well educated, very bright young woman, and yet you were not educated about why the United States leaves an OBGYN effort, leads the world in this information. And no one ever said to you, hey, by the way, Marion Sims experimented on enslaved black women and many times perform these experiments on black women without any anesthesia. Those are the types of stories that communities learn, that communities know, and that stays in our narratives. I heard an emergency room physician speaking to this. She is not a woman of color, but she said that people would try to share who my loved one is. My grandfather is a well-educated man. He has a family and he is, you know, the chair of this board and he is this or that in order to qualify him for good care, to make yeah. sure that they're communicating to the people, the very people who are supposed to be taking care of him, his humanity in order to feel like we're going to get good care if I can tell you 
who he is. He's not just 85-year-old black man. He is this, 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 and this, and he matters and is important. And we would hope that would be accepted and validated just by the fact that he's a human being. But families often feel they have to qualify their loved ones when they're receiving care. Your humanity is is ripped from you when you feel like, oh, I have to make these qualifications for you to treat me just as good as you would treat any other person that would walk in these doors that doesn't look like me. And that level of self-worth that doesn't exist. Maybe it exists for us in turn. Like we know that we're worthy, right? That is not the problem. We know that we are worthy. But when we realize that the world doesn't see us that way. So let me put all these requirements so you know who I am. So 2023, we are still qualifying ourselves to be treated as full human beings. It's important to remember that you have members of your patient groups that there is yet another level of challenge for LGBTQ, for people of color, for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different education backgrounds, that we need to be cognizant of that, that people need to listen to the stories that you and I are talking about today. Mm -hmm. And more important than just listening to it, believing it because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, people are not making this up and people are not complaining. People are just trying to get through the day. They're trying to get through this diagnosis. They're trying to get their loved ones to care. It's really important for activists and advocates to pay attention to those stories. And not only believing it, but then taking action on it. You know, and and realizing, okay, this is the the reality of someone's life. What can I do to take action on this? And obviously that action looks different for each person. If you're a provider, you have different responsibilities when you hear these stories to take action. But even if you're just a friend of someone who has had these experiences, but maybe they don't know how to communicate for themselves or advocate for themselves in those ways, Being able to say, oh, would you like me to go with you to those doctor's appointments, you know, and and really having that sense of community and someone holding your hand because the healthcare experiences can sometimes be a whole different language, even for people like us who study this or in the field, it can be overwhelming. But having someone in there with you is also super helpful. And there's a whole community that feels that in terms of physicians who feel like I've gotten into this practice because I care about people and I want to treat people. Mm-hmm. I think understanding people's origins, understanding people's experience, you'll hear the term, oh, I treat everybody the same. Even treating everybody the same isn't really the answer. The answer is understanding and listening. If you ever say, I treat all my patients the same, then perhaps you're not providing the care because it's not the same. It changes from person to person. Frankly, as a black female, I've taught, don't make a fuss, don't make a scene, Mm -hmm. you know, don't complain, just get through it. You're strong, you'll make it through. And there's this whole movement of women of color to say, you know, I'm not going to be superwoman today. Mm -hmm. This hurts really bad and I'm not going to treat my pain as something that's an inconvenience to my physician. I am very lucky. I have had the same physician 
for 20 plus years. And I think that is really unheard of. I don't know if you've experienced yes. that, you know, you're a much younger woman than I am, but mm -hmm. I have had the same physician take care of my family for many years. So I know that I am being listened to because if I'm not, I can be straight and forward. I don't assume the worst of anybody, certainly not my physician. I feel like they're a partner in my healthcare We've heard so much conversation about maternal mortality among Black women. And I think you had shared earlier that Black women are three times more likely to die. So for people like, maybe it's a socioeconomic thing. And then you hear Serena Williams, mm -hmm. one of the best tennis pros in world history, who did share all of the information. Even she wasn't listened to in almost losing her life. I think it's like you think, okay, we're just regular people, you know? And I think there's been studies that have showed that it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is, what your education is. It is being Black, being African-American is something that is blind to all the other, I mean, I'm saying in air quotes here, qualifications. It's true. It's real. The numbers are there. And I want to make sure that those people are getting the care that they deserve. It's really important to be able to call our caregivers, our clinical providers, our physicians, our patient advocates to make sure that people are seen as the individual human beings that they are and all that they bring to that table. I'm yes. curious, Ashley, when you see and talk to your friends, what is the most important issue that they're dealing with in terms of their own health care? Our mental health is important. We're really prioritizing that. I've had tons of conversations with friends about therapy and about really addressing those stressors of the world, connecting people to different resources such as therapyforblackmen.org, therapyforblackgirls.com. And in addition to that, reproductive health. I have at least six friends who have fibroids and have received care around that. And so we talk about resources such as the White Dress Project that helps empower women, create a space for them in community. And, and going hand in hand with reproductive health is also maternal health and maternal mortality among Black women. I'm in my 30s. A lot of my friends are, and not all of us have children yet. The medical field actually considers any pregnancy after 35 years old as geriatric, and that's for any woman. So just that extra layer of being a Black woman and what does that mean for us is something that we are constantly thinking about and discussing. But we try not to obsess over those details and get too much in the weeds because we still want to have hope for our future. You know, we still want to be able to think positively about our bodies. but. It's very difficult, very daunting. So there are lots of things that we're constantly thinking about and talking about in our circles that revolve around healthcare. My daughter just had a little one, fourth baby, and she had her third baby at home because he was born during the pandemic. So she felt much mm. more comfortable being home. Her experience mm. in the hospital was basically, you're going to do this our way. We're not going to be inventing new ways to have a baby. She basically wanted to be in different positions to alleviate pain. They were encouraging Pitocin and she really didn't want to do that. So she decided with all of these facts, she decided that she really wanted to have the baby at home. There are bright moments in healthcare and 
I don't want to give anyone the impression that it's all murky because it's not. There are some yeah. really excellent providers out there, excellent hospitals and places where you get excellent care. So I've seen every side of yeah. this for my daughter upfront and, and personal, but the numbers don't lie. The stats don't lie. It is what it is. I think everybody's concerned. Oh, my daughter's having a baby. I think there's a natural mm -hmm. concern. But I think when it's a woman of color, seeing those statistics, it's like being afraid all the time. And I just don't know that one size fits all if home birth is the answer, or maybe it's just choosing the hospital or looking at the mm -hmm. ratings of hospitals and so forth. It's just kind of understanding where you're going and who's providing the service and what they care about exactly. and what people are saying about them. Exactly. And in addition to us, <laughs> my friends and I talking about our own care, a lot of my friends are also caregivers for their aging parents. And that adds a level of us stepping into this role of having to advocate for others and navigating what that looks like mm -hmm. on top of trying to take care of ourselves. I also have some friends who have lost parents during the pandemic in these last three years. So there are lots of things that a generation is, is navigating for the first time that no one else can speak to. You know, the generations prior to us can't speak to those things. Not in the same way. I think there's always been skepticism. Like I was telling you about my great aunts, mm -hmm. not even my aunt, my great aunts. But you can understand that skepticism because everybody accepted the fact that Black people were not considered full human beings. They were considered two-thirds of a human being. So I think there has been a simmering level of mistrust very well and alive in our community. I think that, again, there's solutions. It's not just listening, but believing that this is true. Exactly. And are there any other teachings that you would say history teaches us that we could apply today? All that you've learned about these different stories and history and discrimination, how does that connect to where we are in 2023? And how does that help us look forward to the future? I hear a lot of this amongst my friends and my colleagues and co-workers that, oh, the next generation is going to get it, is going to understand it better. Don't assume that new doctors will have a better understanding of isms, sexism, mm -hmm. racism, homophobic behavior. So there's a lot of information out there that will save the lives of people that look like you and me if people are understanding that Black people do not have a different threshold of pain. Race is a political construct. We are just people. And making sure that we understand communities that are coming for care, understanding mm -hmm. where those communities are coming from. <sighs> yes, I like that. And you're so right. Not putting that pressure on future generations to, <laughs> to figure right. it out. Or assume know. because people are young, people are activists, people care about mm -hmm. this issue. I mean, people are also learning from people who've been around for a long time. So information and caring about these things really matters. Maybe I should have shared this in my origin story. I am not a <laughs> provider. I have been a communications person in healthcare since 2011. So I am 
having this experience, having this conversation with you just as a lay person. But all of us are patients. Most of us have been caregivers at some point in time. So that's where I'm coming from, that there are stories, that there is information, and that we should not assume that someone else is taking care of this, that we need to make sure that we're educating ourselves and that the structural isms that are in our community have been there forever and serve a community in a certain sort of way. Henrietta Locks is another example of here's this woman whose family did not realize that her cells were being used in research and studies and so forth all across the globe. They weren't even informed. They didn't even know about it. Think about her family. A lot of them didn't even have health care. But yet here are the cells they took from this woman. All the benefits that came from the research done on the cells from this woman and that her family didn't even benefit in any way. It's a very sad story, a story that could be told over and over again. The syphilis experiences that happened in Tuskegee where people were not informed. I believe the experiment went on for 42 years. People thought they were being treated and they were not being treated. They passed it on to their children. I mean, the inhumanity of science does exist. And there is a reason for people saying, I don't know if this is for us. Like my aunt said, you know, surgery, it's not for us. I remember them saying, once they open you up, it's pretty much over for you. And this is something that has been prevalent in uh, the Black community for many years. And we're talking about the Black community, but I think it's a very good bellwether for what happens to people who are other. And as healthcare gets better for Black people, it truly is the tide that lifts all ships. It lifts for all communities. And that's why I think it's important to have this conversation, this very frank and very personal conversation. And are there any other books or resources that people should use to look up these stories? Because we mentioned this earlier, but there were some stories that we talked about that I didn't even know about. I found out about Henrietta Lacks because I have a master's in public health and it was one of our assigned reading. But if it weren't for that class, I don't know when I would have found out about her. So there are a number of books. We say in the DEI world that if you're looking for it, you can find it. If you're interested <laughs> and you're curious, you will be able to find it. I felt like I was really educated when I listened to the 1619 Project. It talked specifically about healthcare. I think that is a great place to start just to get some additional information. And I think informing ourselves of the history of healthcare, no matter who it impacts, I think it is very valuable as a patient community to understand the history of healthcare and the history of others' engagement with healthcare. I think there are solutions in recognizing that reality for the entire community. We think from where we stand, from where we sit, we're educated, we read, we're informed, but yet there's still so much we do not know. The more the community knows, the better off we'll be as patients. And this is your one life, this is your one body, this is your one family. I think it's getting better. The more we know, the better we are. It's not all bleak. There's a lot of very promising things on the horizon. And again, back to the physician community, I do believe that the majority of physicians wanted to be physicians to help people. It's a partnership. Like you might have all of the medical knowledge and background, 
but you don't know my body and my experience in the way that I know it. So that whoever you're working with, you need to be clear that this is a partnership.